Please turn with me in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 2. <clears throat> Habakkuk chapter 2. We are looking at this whole chapter, as most of it is, is a song, it's a taunt of the Babylonians. Uh, many things that the Lord is going to judge them for, uh, bring back upon them of what they are going to be doing to the children of God. You know, this is something that uh, we shouldn't just gloss over because as we're seeing this in the first chapter, everything is being set, the foundation of what we are getting ready to go over. The prophet is complaining unto the Lord. This is his covenant people. There is injustice, there is violence, there is so much going on. These are things that he is experiencing. He's not just sitting back and trying to philosophize about how does the sovereignty of God work? How does the holiness of God work in conjunction with all the injustice that we see in the world? He's actually experiencing this. And so his complaint is one that is, we, we can look at it and say, well, how can this prophet complain to the Lord and even question the character of God? How can he do that? Well, one, obviously, he's just a man. He's experiencing these injustices uh, in his own lifetime. It's before his eyes. He's seeing bloodshed. These are questions that he has unto the Lord, and so he complains. He's complaining unto the Lord, how long am I going to have to watch this? I'm, this is before me. What are you going to do about it? Where, where are you in this? These are people that you called by your name. And yet nothing is, 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 is occurring here. No, no, no resolutions. You're not doing anything. And so the Lord responds back and says, I am doing something. You won't believe it. You're not going to believe it even, even if I tell you. And so he says to the prophet, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and they are going to be used as the instrument of his justice against his own people. And upon hearing God's plan, he's going to do something. You know, the prophet says, how can you do that? Those people are more wicked than your own people. You can't look upon them with favor. You can't approve of this. Surely this isn't the plan. How can, how can, how can you do that? And so that's his questioning. That's where he's at. He, he understands it, that the Lord is going to use them as, as a means to chastise his people. He admits that. He says that very thing in the first chapter. He acknowledges that based on the character of God, his people are not going to be vanquished. They're going to live. They're going to continue on. They're not going to be annihilated. Even in the midst of his complaint, he acknowledges God to be who he is. He says in verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Think of the names that he's using here, the titles that he's using. One, he does appeal to the sacred name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the one who exists. He's the Holy One. He's, he's the Mighty One. He's, he's God. He's the Rock. He's the Strong One. And yet... How can you do this? Your eyes are too pure to approve of evil. You cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Like you're giving them into to, to the, the hands of those more wicked. And so he's questioning. 
He's bringing these complaints before the Lord. He's questioning how God can do this and what is going to be the end result. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? What's the end result going to be here? So this is the prophet who has, from his, he is crying out, these complaints are coming from the innermost being of, of who he is, of what he knows about the Lord, who the Lord is. And so he's not just sitting back trying to put these two things together. He's experiencing these in real time and in his own land among his own people. This is a great issue for him. It would be like, as one theologian said, it would be like we're praying for our nation. We're praying for America. Oh, Lord, you know, turn your people back to you. Turn this nation around. Praying like this. We have an idea of what we want the Lord to do. This is the, this is the best plan. Just cause a revival and everything will be fine. And what if the Lord was to say, I got a plan and you're not going to believe it. I'm going to raise up this communist party over here Come conquer America. And we would say, wait a minute. That's not quite what I had in mind. Uh, had something else. Maybe we can talk about it. But it would be no different. Because we would look at communist countries and we would say, oh Lord, now they're blatantly atheistic. Their whole a worldview is based on atheism. At least over here in America, we, we had an understanding of the law of God. Though it's dwindling, we, we had a good start. How can you use those people over there to judge us over here? It'd be the same thing. We would have a, a great difficulty with this as well. And that's where the prophet is. Now, what is it that the Lord's going to say to him? How is the Lord going to encourage his heart because this is what's going to happen. Because by the time we get to chapter 3, the prophet is praising the Lord. What then does the Lord say to him? And that's what we're looking at tonight. We're looking at how the Lord is, is commanding his people. And the fact of the Lord not showing favor to those who commit injustice. And that he will deal with them in his appointed time. That gave the prophet comfort. And as we look in our own nation, wondering what's going to happen, it should give us comfort. So if you would, let's stand together and we will look at Habakkuk chapter 2. We will read the chapter. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart. And I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it will certainly come, it will not delay. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. But the righteous will live by his faith. Furthermore, why betrays the haughty man 
so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his, for how long, and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them, because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you, because of human bloodshed and violence done to that land, to the town and all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples, so you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the wall and the rafter will answer it from the framework. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that peoples toll for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk, so as to look on their nakedness. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, and the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them, because of human bloodshed and violence done to that land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all inside it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, you are truly the living God. You are the God who sees all, the God who knows all. You are the God who recompenses your enemies. You are the one who judges righteously. You are always at work, always bringing about what brings you the most glory, that which is in accordance with your will. Father, let us be encouraged tonight. Let our hearts be comforted, knowing that you, one, are at work always, bringing history to its intended end. You will not leave the guilty unpunished. Father, thank you that you are a just God and a righteous God, but thank you that you are a merciful God, a God who extends grace and mercy to those who are so undeserving as us. Thank you, Father, that Christ has saved us from the calamity to come, from the wrath to come. Father, we owe you everything that we are. Let our hearts be encouraged. Let us remember what you call us to, in the days of vengeance. Father, we love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> this first portion of chapter 2 
especially uh, as the Lord begins to speak to the prophet about the vision, really is giving the introduction to the vision, what the vision is about. And even in the midst of that, you have one particular statement that is that is said to his people, almost as, as, as a parenthesis of everything else that he's saying. It begins, though, with the prophet making his complaint, as we've been talking about. And this is one of my favorite verses because it really does show where the prophet's trust in the Lord and his confidence in the Lord is. As he says, he's, he's in this dilemma. He can't figure it out. And so he's going to have to just entrust the answer to the Lord. And so he's going to go and station himself in the rampart, in the tower, in which people would go and, and look out to see if any enemy was coming, all of that. He's away from the crowds. He's by himself. And he's going to wait on an answer from the Lord. But in doing so, he says this. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. It's like he already knows that his questioning of the Lord is, is already going to be received with rebuke to him. Because the things that he, that he says, that God is the Holy One, that he is the one who exists, he's the covenant God, he uses the covenant name of God. He knows that because of who God is, he's from everlasting, he's from the ancient times, he knows that he is always taking care of his people, bringing him through the times of chastening, all of that. And so he realizes that he's going to be reproved. He may not understand. He doesn't understand how the Lord is working in this. What good can come about with this? How can the Lord, with eyes that are too pure to look upon evil with favor, how can he bring this about? He can't figure out the answer. <coughs> Bless you. But then he says, I'm going to go station myself in the tower, and I'm going to wait for the Lord to reprove me. I already know I'm in the wrong. I already know that the, the, the things that I'm saying and I'm, I'm questioning the Lord with, I already know that I'm in the wrong here. Because the Lord is just. The Lord is righteous. The Lord is holy. And anything that, to, to say otherwise will be contrary to his, to his very nature. I know the answer as far as the fact of God being holy and just in everything that he does. And again, this is, this is the prophet who is seeking to know the answer. He's not just saying these things and he's just going to go on about his business. He's going to go wait in the tower. He's looking for the answer. And so then you have the Lord Yahweh who then answers. And he says to the prophet, record this. I want you to write it down right now. And we, we can look at that and we say, okay, well, maybe that's for the future generations and what have you to look back upon and see uh, that this was a prophecy that was made uh, before this actually takes place. And it's the, the judgment that's getting ready to be explained to us is going to come to Babylon in about 539 B.C., about 70 years or so. It's going to happen. But it, all, it could also be that the Lord is saying to the prophet, I don't want you to forget this. I want you to write this down now so that you know it and you can look back on it. You know, it's just like with us, as many times as we hear something good 
and and somebody says something that's maybe profound to us, and we're like, oh, I got to remember that. I got to write that down. And then later on, you forget what it was because you didn't write it down. And here the Lord is saying to the prophet, record this. You're going to need to know this. Record it on the tablets. Inscribe it on the tablets. Very similar word to what's used uh, speaking of the Decalogue and how Moses had the tablets. Very similar. And he says, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. The one who reads it may run. The one who proclaims it, the one who's going to take it to the rest of the people, write it down. The vision is, is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal and it will not fail. So in light of, of your, your, your not understanding everything that's happening here, Habakkuk, you're, you're upset. Your heart is disturbed within you because you can't figure this out. I want you to write this down and I want you to know that this particular vision that I am giving to you, it will come about. It hastens towards the goal. It's going to come at my appointed time. And you have more, of course, that he says, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And so what is he getting ready to say to the prophet? No, I do not look upon wickedness with favor. No, these particular ones are not going to continually slay the nations. These ones will not go unpunished. And so he says to him, in describing the proud one, speaking of the Chaldeans, he says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. How can God show favor to those whose soul is not right within him? And so it's setting it up for what he's getting ready to say to the prophet. No, I don't approve of the evil that they're going to do. I don't delight in wickedness. I'm not unjust in doing this. They're not going to go unpunished. His soul's not right within him. He's a proud one. He's an arrogant one. The Lord doesn't look on favor toward the arrogant and the proud. That is, that is a very timely reality in our own day. At this particular month, when the culture is celebrating Pride Month. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. Why? Because the many things that he is getting ready to <clears throat> express about the proud one, about the, the, the evil of Babylon, are things that are contrary to his very law. These are taking delight in the things that are contrary to the law of God, which is no different than today. And again, this is a very timely message for us, not just because of the LGBT stuff that goes on, but because of the blatant rebellion across the board. And we wonder, how is it that these people keep gaining a foothold? How is it that there seem to be more of them popping up? Why does it seem that this wickedness is increasing? Is the Lord showing favor to them? How is this working? And what does the Lord say? As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him. He doesn't look upon favor with them. There is a judgment that is hastening toward a particular 
time, an appointed time, according to the sovereign decree of God. Not in Habakkuk's time. Habakkuk would rather just, Lord, just do it now. Don't, don't allow this to come upon your people. Don't allow this suffering. But it was God's way of chastening his people that they would look once again unto him. So there's a contrast there. They're proud when his soul is not right within him. He doesn't approve of the proud one. He's not showing favor to the proud one. But then he says this. Now, verse, verses 4 and, and through the rest of the chapter, verses 4 to 20 again, are all in reference to uh, the Babylonians and his judgment, except for the last portion of verse 4. One statement in which it seems to be, like I said, a parenthesis within this whole judgment. As for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, we know this verse. This is, this is a verse that is quoted three times in the New Testament. It's a verse that uh, we know that impacted Luther so greatly. As Luther had gotten sick at one point, he had been doing his study through Romans, Galatians. He began to ponder this, this whole idea of the righteous live by faith. When he recovered from his, from his sickness, he went to um, the church where you have what was called Pilate's Staircase and you have many pilgrims that would come there and they would go up each step on their knees and they would be praying and sometimes there was glass that would be set out on the steps and they were inflicting pain upon themselves trying to atone for their own sin. And as Luther is coming up this, these steps, this is when the full realization of the righteous will live by his faith had impacted him so greatly that he, that he understood it. So he gets up off the step and he goes back, goes back home. The way that the Apostle Paul uses this phrase in the New Testament is absolutely in reference to the salvation of people, that it's all of faith. You live by faith. The prophet here is, is speaking to, or the Lord rather, is speaking to the prophet about those who endure this whole scenario. Uh, this, this whole situation. Write this on the tablets. Inscribe it. Go tell the people. His soul doesn't delight in the proud one. His soul delights in the justified man living by faith. So what is he saying? He's not just saying in, in the context of the, of the prophet. He's not just giving us justification by faith alone. In that sense, he's also emphasizing something more about the way in, in, that we're, we're living and the way that the people would live in that time frame as well. Knowing that this Babylonian invasion is coming, knowing that it's going to hasten and it's going to come within just a few years of, of this prophecy, what then shall you do? You live by faith. Take this message, take it to the people, and trust in me. 
What does he mean? The righteous live by faith. Well, who are the righteous? We can look back at the opening verse that we we had there in Psalm 32. The righteous, the justified one, is the one whose transgression and sin has been forgiven. The one whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. We can look at the righteous one as the one who in Psalm 34 uh, takes refuge in, in Yahweh. The one who believes the word of the Lord as Abraham did. Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteous, right, righteousness. These are to live by faith. The totality of that is, of course, justification by faith in the New Testament is what we understand. It still has the same principle here, but also in the way of living in view of the calamity that's coming. You're living, you're living by faith. You place your faith in the Lord. You're justified in the sight of the Lord, but you keep believing. You're living by faith. Living by faith when everything else is being destroyed around you. James Montgomery Boyce, he says, the righteous will live by his faith. The world may crumble about our ears. All that we know and love may vanish, but the righteous will live by his faith. He will live by faith in the one who keeps us, not only in the moment of our initial belief in Jesus Christ as Savior, but in every later moment of life as well. Living by faith, living and believing in Christ, not only for our salvation, but believing the word of the Lord for the rest of our lives. Live by faith. Now, some, some commentators would say, would interpret this in the word can mean this. Uh, the righteous will live by his faithfulness. But in this context, faith seems to be uh, the more proper uh, understanding here because faithfulness would imply that we're doing something in order to, to live righteously before the Lord we're living by faith we're living by believing what God said God said this is going to happen but I'm going to punish those who are the perpetrators this is going to come to an end so we believe that. We believe the word of the Lord and we keep our focus and we keep moving forward, living by faith. That is what the Lord has called the people of God to do. When everything else is crumbling around, believe the word of the Lord. What does that imply then? If I believe the word of the Lord, I'm going to have confidence in what God said. I'm going to trust in what God said. Yes, the world may look terrible right now, but I trust that God said that he will make all things right at his appointed time. I trust in the word of the Lord when he says that we will have eternal life. I trust that the Lord says he'll never leave me. He'll never abandon me. I trust that the Lord tells me that, that he'll make a way of escape with every temptation. And sometimes the temptation may not be for any particular thing in my own life as, as far as battling within myself, but it could very well be the temptation to abandon and to go to this side over here just to avoid any conflict. To compromise. I trust in what the word of the Lord says to keep me grounded, to keep me moving forward, keep me trusting in the way that God has said for me to live. 
I live in view of what God has said. That's how all the people of God live. From the beginning to the end, it's the same. What does God require of the people of God? To trust in Him for their only hope of salvation, to believe what He said, and live according to what He said. When the times are difficult, we believe and we live accordingly. And when you're looking at situations, even within the scripture, I mean, if you look at the, the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, the Lord is commending the churches, some of the churches rather, for their faithfulness in the midst of great persecution. That they're trusting in him. And that is the way that the people of God are to live. We live by faith. We trust what God said. We rely on Him. We take refuge in Him. We believe His word. Even when everything seems to be crumbling. And you know the great hope that is, that is even in the midst of the time in which we live is the same hope that it was for the people of God then in verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Whereas these, just as it was for the Babylonians, are trying to build up glory for themselves and praise for themselves, the Lord says, I'm going to bring you down. And it's going to be my glory that fills all the earth, not yours. That is a great comfort and a strength for the people of God to keep moving forward knowing that God at his appointed time will make all things right. He says, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. He is like death. He's never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all the nations and collects to himself all the peoples. This is what the haughty man, the proud man, this is why none are ever satisfied. The unregenerate always want more. But we just want this for now. Well, they end up getting that. Then they want more. It's just as we were talking about Sunday, when it comes to those in, in the LGBT lifestyle, they just want to be accepted in society. Well, society ended up giving them that. Then, well, we're not satisfied there. We want, we want marriage. And we want you to accept our version of marriage. Well, society gave it to them. Now we want our people to be represented in everything in the arts. Well, society gives it to them. And it just keeps going and going and going because they're never satisfied. The unregenerate, whether it's in this group or another group, they're never satisfied. They're always wanting more. They always crave more. And that's just a characteristic of the unregenerate. Those that are in blatant rebellion against God. And so for that reason, of course, the Lord does not take delight in them. And so here he says, Verses 6 to 20. There are five woes that are being spoken of here. But they're all in a taunt. It's a taunt against this particular nation that believes itself to be so great and mighty that none could ever stand before them. You think of the Babylonian Empire. I mean, here they conquered the Assyrians, or they're conquering all the known world. They're going to be a world power. 
They're going to be world power for a little while. Eighty-some years, putting it all together. And this world power is going to come upon this small nation. And the Lord says, I want you to take up this taunt song against them. Now just think of that. This massive power, this massive army that's getting ready to invade, I want you to take up a taunt against them. That just seems unreal. You want us to what? This is really going to end badly for us. But no. Because the sovereign God says, I want you to record this. This is my taunt, not yours. And what is it John Knox said? One man with the Lord is in the majority. So it doesn't matter how massive of an army is coming. When you have Yahweh on your side, or rather you're on his side, none can stand before him. So here's, here's what he says. Here's the first bow. Beginning of verse 6, he says, Will not all of these take up a taunt song against even, even, excuse me, against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his for how long and makes himself rich with loans? And he's talking about greed. This is the first divine oracle of doom. A woe is an oracle of doom. About their greed. He addresses a number of things here. He addresses their greed. He addresses, he addresses their injustice. He addresses their violence. Their moral decline. Their moral decay. And their idolatry. Throughout all of these. And when the prophet is saying, whoa, he's saying, alas, how terrible. This is to stop them in their tracks and to consider what is getting ready to be said to them. You think yourselves mighty. You take whatever it is that you want. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? And those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. That's what he says to this nation. You have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you because of the human bloodshed and the violence done to that land, to the town and all its inhabitants. What is the Lord saying in all of these things? Everything that you're doing is going to come back on you. How's, it, how's that going to happen? Because in, in the appointed time, the Lord is going to raise up the Middle Persian Empire and they're going to conquer the Babylonians. And the things that are being done, not only to the people of God, but to the rest of the nations that they are conquering, it's going to come back upon their own head. So their greed, they take what they want, they loot the nations, and the Lord says, the plunderer is going to become the plunder. You take what you want now, but the time is going to come in which they're going to take from you. So he speaks of their greed. He speaks of their injustice, beginning of verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. And very similar language like he would say about an eagle. An eagle makes his nest up high in order to, to keep safe. 
They think because of everything that they amass, all their wealth and everything else is going to keep them safe. They do great injustice to people. They devise a shameful thing for your house. You're cutting off many peoples. So you're sinning against yourself. You know, the very thing that you find so often within the Old Testament itself is that God delights in justice. God delights in righteousness. And it doesn't matter whether it's his own people or the nations themselves. Those who commit injustice are held accountable by the Lord. And this is, uh, this is something to remember and to understand here. Because sometimes I don't know if it's just... <clears throat> Well, I don't know the answer. I don't know why it is that we look to the the nations in the Old Testament and we say, well, God didn't hold them accountable to what he says to his own people when it comes to the law of God. Well, within this taught, the Lord is holding accountable this pagan nation for their greed, for their violence, for their moral decay, uh, speaking of sexual sins in the context of what he's saying, and their idolatry. Their idolatry. The nations. Well, the nations didn't have the prophets going to them every now and again. A prophet would go. Jonah went to Nineveh. You have some that prophesied against Edom, Obadiah. How is it that the Lord is holding the nations accountable for their idolatry? They don't know. All they have was the light of nature. Well, it goes back to what we found in Romans 1. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for that of corruptible man and a four-footed beast and of, of birds. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. They became futile in their speculations. And who is Paul referring to in Romans 1? He's not referring to the covenant people of God. He'll get to them. He's speaking of the Gentiles. The Gentiles are indeed held accountable for their idolatry. So that when we're looking at the Decalogue, we're looking at the Ten Commandments, it is not just the second tablet that God is holding the nations accountable to. He's holding them accountable for it all. Because they should know God. They should honor God. They should acknowledge God. And they don't. Was it R.C. Sproul said that the demons... They fear and they tremble. And they don't. The nations don't. The unregenerate don't altogether. So they have this oracle of doom upon them for their injustice. And then for their violence. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that the people's toll for fire and the nations grow weary for nothing? This is a violent people. And God is holding them accountable for it. And if you want to get more specific, by the way, when it comes to the Lord holding nations accountable to his law, all you have to do is go back to Leviticus Read Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. And the seven nations that God is throwing out of the land have committed the abominations that he's telling his people. You don't do what they did. Because on account of these things, I'm driving them out. 
the same thing with the Babylonians. It was the same thing with Jonah and, and the people of Nineveh. For their violence, for their bloodshed, for their idolatry, for their sexual immoralities. These are a violent people who are trying to uh, amass glory for themselves. And what does the Lord say? This is my taunt against you. But the whole earth is going to be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You think that you're building glory for yourself, but I'm going to bring you down. I raised you up. I'm going to bring you down. I'm going to judge you for all your wickedness and it'll be my glory, says the Lord, that will be filling the earth, not yours. You could look at this in a, a few different ways. One in the sense of the earth is filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You could look at our present day. You can see the people of God around the globe. Christians are around the globe. The kingdom of God is, is growing with every new person that comes to faith, that the Lord brings to faith. And the knowledge of the Lord is encompassing the entire globe. And you can look at it in the final consummation of everything when the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth in that way. So in that sense, there is the now and the not yet. It won't be any nation who thought themselves so powerful. It will not be any particular people who thought themselves so powerful that their glory will, will extend throughout the earth. It is the sovereign king. It's his glory. And he doesn't share his glory with anyone. So for their violence, he will bring them down. In verse 15, you have <clears throat> the fourth woe. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink, who mix in your venom even to make them drunk so as to look on their nakedness. Now there's a few things that could be in reference here. It could be uh, using this kind of imagery to say, you make your neighbors drunk and then you, you mock them in their nakedness. Or it could mean that the evil heart of this people is one who not only would do something like this, but probably more so in the sense of their sexual sins is in view here. You look upon their nakedness those whom you have power over that you have subdued. You commit great injustice against them by your sexual perversions. He says you will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. An utter disgrace will come upon your glory. What is, it, what is it that he's saying again? Everything you're doing is going to be brought back to you. So the Lord is not letting these go unpunished. He is in his, in his justice. He is going to bring it back around to them. He's using them at this present moment to chastise his people. But the time is coming when he's going to judge them. And then you have the fifth woe. To me, this seems like a little bit of sarcasm. 
Very similar to what Isaiah says. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake! To a mute stone, arise! And that is your teacher. This is what the Lord says. He's like, what prophet is the idol? When its maker carved it. Just as Isaiah was talking about. Cutting down the tree. Using one half of it to make your food. You use the other half. To carve out your God. And then you bow down to a piece of wood. And that's what Habakkuk is saying too. He's saying, how terrible. Alas, to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, to a mute stone, arise. And that is your teacher. And again, this is a taunt by the Lord. You think that your idols are the ones who are giving everyone into your hands. And remember, as we were going through Daniel, we were looking at, at perhaps the idea in that time frame is not only one nation coming against the other nation, but in their mindset, it was one God coming against another God. And whoever was the victor meant that that was the particular God that won. And here Babylon is going to come in. They're going to sack the city. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to take the things out of the temple. They're going to take them to Babylon and put them in their treasury. But in Daniel, just as we saw numerous times of how the Lord was sovereignly working, even in Babylon, and even humbled the great king of Babylon. The idols are nothing. They cannot say. They cannot speak. They cannot hear. Can't see anything. Because it's a piece of wood. I forgot which, which missionary it was I was reading about. He went to one of the areas where, where they had a sacred tree. And he cut down the tree. He was spreading the gospel. These people had believed in this false god. And they thought that this tree was sacred. And so this missionary cuts down the tree. Well, surely then your God must be greater than this God because nothing happened to you. And so you have perhaps not the best of means in some of the ways that missionaries had done things at that particular time. But you did have the people who were then turning to Christ uh, as a result of things like that. piece of wood is a piece of wood it's nothing and it cannot save and that's the taunt that the Lord is going to give to this great massive empire you think that your gods you think Marduk you think he's going to save you he's nothing he's nothing and you know, when you're looking at some of these amazing prophecies that are given not only in Isaiah, but then in Ezekiel and some of the things I'd shared with you before. When you're looking at Ezekiel and you're reading in chapter 1 and you're reading in chapter 10 and you see Ezekiel has this vision and he sees the Lord. And he, well, he sees this wheel within a wheel and it's not a UFO. He sees a wheel within a wheel and he sees four living creatures in it. And all these four living creatures, they have four heads. And yet there's a platform on the top and he sees... He sees the great king sitting on the platform and, and these four living creatures are going whichever way that he desires for them to go. And it was Dr. Daniel Block who had showed us uh, pictures uh, and of statues and, and, and various paintings of the cherubim that uh, these people would use 
in order to, to place their God upon. The cherubim will be sitting there, there will be a platform on top, and then their God would sit on this thing. And what is, it, what is Ezekiel uh, being able to see? He's seeing the great king who's not just confined in Israel. The great king is coming, and the great king is actually riding the cherubim. And he directs him whichever way he wants. And guess what? He's coming into Babylon. There's no gods to stop him. Why? Because there are no other gods. The sovereign king is the one who raises up nations, who brings them down, who uses them at his will to do whatever he desires. And their gods are nothing and cannot save them when he purposes to execute his justice against them. And so in the time in which in which Babylon is going to be judged, their idols are not going to be able to save them. And if you remember from Daniel, you remember the night in which Belshazzar had his great banquet. And he says, bring me the, the cups and all that from the treasury, from, from Jerusalem, from the temple, bring them in here. And they begin to make a mockery out of the Lord and then he sees the handwriting on the wall and that very night is when the Middle Persians came in and took over because when God purposes to judge and execute his justice there are none who can save there is no other God who can deliver and that was the very lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned and you'd think that some of his descendants would have remembered this None can thwart his hand or say to him, what have you done? His dominion is everlasting. The words of Nebuchadnezzar. So this is the vision. This is the, the vision that God is saying to the prophet, record this. And I want you to take it. And I want you to go proclaim it. Because this is where this is headed. You think that now that, I, that I'm unjust for allowing this nation to come across to come upon my covenant people. I'm chastising them for the purpose that they would turn to me and I'm going to judge that nation. They're not going unpunished back. And they can't go unpunished because God is altogether righteous. God is good. God is holy. And the wicked will never go unpunished. Ever. Not one wicked not one unregenerate will go unpunished. All will be dealt with. Praise God for those that are in Christ. He dealt with our punishment. But God still had to render it. Because sin must be punished. All sin. For those that don't have one who makes atonement for them. Their punishment will come in due time. Now there is that that I you know that, that level of those that we know that are that are unregenerate now that are in blatant rebellion against the Lord. It's 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 not a situation in which we should we should go to them and say, you know what? The Lord wins, you don't. So Continue on with your nonsense. Because when you die, you'll see. We could do that. We could say that. In what sense that's true. In the time that they, they die, they're going to perish. 
The Lord is going to render his judgment upon them. Actually, they're going to be held waiting for their judgment. The great white throne judgment. But there's also that level of having a heart for the lost, as we've been talking about. To say to them, in light of the horrific judgment and terrible judgment of God, turn and be saved. Turn from your wickedness, turn from your greed and your injustice and your violence and your moral decay. Turn from your idolatry and turn to the living God. There's a, there's a sense in which the people of God can have a hope and can be encouraged to know that on a grand scale that all the things that we're looking at, all the evils of our day is going to be dealt with and God is going to bring judgment and God is going to execute His, His righteous judgment and make all things right. There's that level of, that is encouraging. That is a comfort to know that they're not getting away with this. But then there's that other part of it too. Oh Lord, if it be your will, let me reach those that I know and that I love. Work in their heart. Use me as your instrument that they might be brought to faith. They might be a brand plucked from the fire. To be your will. So we should be encouraged to know that God is going to make all things right and that God's judgment is going to be just. Who knows what He's going to do with America as we've been talking about. Uh, these things that we're seeing today are not things that lead to judgment. These are things that are judgment according to Romans 1. We're in the judgment now on this nation. Is it possible that God can bring about a great revival as a result of this? Absolutely. You know, in the times in which he had judged his people in the old covenant, it brought them back. Now, America is not in covenant with God in the same way as his covenant people were. But we understand that. But at the same time, all people are accountable to God. All people are. And this nation itself is accountable to the one who blessed it. And so we pray. We ask the Lord to work. We ask the Lord to help us to live by faith every day, not to compromise, not to be in despair, not to be disheartened by what we see in the bloodshed in, in front of us or the violence in front of us or the, the immoralities in front of us. And we ask the Lord, what are you doing about this? Let us be encouraged that He is working and you wouldn't believe what He's doing even if He were to tell you. But it hastens towards a goal and He says to you and I, all the people of God live by faith. Trust me. Have confidence in me. And that's what we are to do. God will make all things right. And the sovereign living God will make himself known and will vindicate his name in his appointed time. Let's pray again. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you that you are the righteous God. That the guilty will not go unpunished. You will vindicate your name. And the whole earth will be filled with your glory. The knowledge of our Lord will fill the earth. You will have dominion. Father, we, we look forward to that day when all things are, are made right. At your appointed time. But we ask, Lord that you would help us every day to live accordingly, to keep our focus upon you, 
to remember what it is that you have done for us in your son. You've granted us eternal life through him, through faith, through faith alone. And that the way in which we live should be a demonstration of our trust and confidence in you. Father, do a mighty work within us. Cultivate in us a greater commitment to you every day. A greater love for you. A greater desire to see the lost saved. And to escape the wrath to come. Father, we are instruments in your hand. Use us as you wish. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children say, Amen. Well, thank you for your attention and you are dismissed.